I'm excited to speak on this scripture today. I don't know if I've actually ever taught on this piece of scripture, but before I get into it, I want to tell you about my friend Jim. Uh, Jim Sterner is a friend of mine. I lived with him for a year, maybe a year and a half in Waterford, Michigan. I was 21 years of age at the time. I had just started following Jesus in my life and learning the way of Jesus. Uh, Jim was quite older than me. He was about 10 years older than me, maybe a little less than that. Very analytical. He was one of my two roommates. Uh, he was an engineer at one of the bigger companies in Motor City, Detroit. And, uh, and so it, 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 was, it was normal for him to have an analytical mind that was often skeptic of my new faith. Jim would have told you back then he was an atheist. He couldn't buy in. So he would often push and prod on my new faith and why I was doing some of the things that I was doing and why I was believing some of the things that I was believing. Uh, but for some reason in this specific season, um, me and my other roommate, Mike, we, we wanted to invite him into something different as an atheist. And, uh, and, and so something that many of you don't know, uh, Amanda has some extended family that lives in KwaZulu-Natal. Um, they are Zulu. And, uh, and we often spent significant time throughout the early years of our marriage in South Africa, both doing some ministry work, but also just learning from Baba Mama Mafu, Azai, the late Isaiah Mafu and Mercy Mafu, uh, who is still thriving and leading in ministry in South Africa, were two very pivotal voices in my formation early on. And, uh, and so we would go there every year and spend some time there. And this specific year, I decided I wanted to invite my atheist friend, Jim. And so me and my friend Mike, we said, Jim, why don't you come with us? Totally expecting him to look at us and laugh. He instead looked at us very frankly and said, okay, let's go. And we were like, oh, okay. And, uh, and so Jim went with us. And now we go to this area in the rural area of South Africa. And usually what we would do is myself, Amanda, we would be some of the more pastoral voices for a team of doctors and nurses. And we would set up medical clinics in an area where the baby boomer generation has really been wiped out because of AIDS, at least 20 years ago back then. And so we went. First few days, one of my roles was to go into the AIDS ward at a, at a hospital in Mpambani and really just sit with people. Sit with people in the last few days of their life, pray with them, uh, be with them, hear about their family if they were still conscious and could speak. And, uh, and, and I was about to go do this again on one afternoon. And I asked Jim if he wanted to come with me. I said, Jim, why don't you come? And he's like, you're going into an AIDS ward. And I said, yeah, uh, yeah, we're, it's, it's safe, Jim. We're going to be with people, sit with people, mourn with people, grieve with people, tell people that God is with them. You just follow me. And he's like, Dan. And I remember this, the facial expression. There was a mixture of, um, Dan, you're an idiot and shame that I'm not willing to do this. But he looked at me and he just said, Dan, I just, I'm sorry. I'm just not there yet. I'm just, I'm, I'm just not there yet. I'm glad you are. I'm glad you believe what you believe. I'm glad you're able to do these really incredible things for people. But I'm just, I'm not there yet. And this really is the sentiment of so many. This idea, this tone and tenor of, I'll do good things. I'll do amazing things that I know that God, if God exists, wants me to do in life. But first, I really, I need to get there. I need to believe. I need to believe before I go do these things. I'm just not there yet. In fact, I would actually suggest that this is much of the Protestant and evangelical church. I have to believe first. I have to say yes to this doctrinal statement or pray this 
different faith-filled formula. And once I finally get there and pray that thing and speak that thing out loud, then I can start doing some of those really good things. The problem is we know a lot of people throughout the city of New York and beyond that have said those right words, that have declared that doctrinal statement, that have prayed that prayer and still are jerks, right? That just still, you look at them and you're like, yeah, you look nothing like Jesus. What I know of Jesus, you look nothing like him. Then you have the Catholic church. I grew up in a Catholic family. I love the Catholic church in all of its weaknesses and brokennesses. I believe Jesus is working in the Catholic church as well. Now, generally speaking, and I'm saying generally, so please don't email me, okay? Generally speaking, the Catholic church does not put a lot of value in evangelism. A local Catholic parish does not put a lot of stock and value in, in, in talking about why they believe what they believe. Often, not always, often you're Catholic by culture. You're Catholic because you grew up in an Irish Catholic family like me. You, you're Catholic because you grew up in a Latino family. You're Catholic because you grew up in an Italian family. That's why you're Catholic. And because you do the right Catholic things, right? You go to mass, you go to baptism, you go to first communion, you, you, you take part in the sacraments. You, you believe you're Christian because you do the right things, you believe. Uh, but again, we know a lot of people within the Catholic Church and outside the Catholic Church that do a lot of the right things, and yet as they're charitable, they're still jerks. Or they do the right things, they just do them with the wrong motivations. And so here's what I, I just want to paint a picture of what I think is happening spiritually around the country of the United States, but also largely in the Western Hemisphere. Again, this is a general kind of broad stroke painting here. We have a group of people that says, I think, therefore I am. I believe all the right things. I say all the right things. I pray all the right things. Therefore, I'm a Christian. That's a lot of the evangelical Protestant vein of spirituality. Then we have another group of people that says, I do all the right things, therefore I am a Christian. And so what happens is there's a few different perceived pathways to experience God and God's love and God's purposes for us in the United States of America. First, if I think all of the right things and consent to all of this right doctrine, I'm going to somehow get God's love and I'm going to get whatever salvation may mean to me in that season, right? Secondly, if I do all the right things, if I act with the right behavior, I'm going to get God's love, experience who God is, and get whatever salvation means to us in that specific season. The problem is that both of these break down. In a recent survey done by the Barna Group, 87% of the next generation who would label themselves non-Christians perceive Christianity and those of us that call ourselves Christ followers in a negative light. The words used throughout this survey are hypocritical, judgmental, old-fashioned, and way too intertwined with politics. 87%. And so not only are these spiritual pathways potentially not working for us as individuals, these spiritual pathways, if they're the two options for how to engage with God, ain't working for the rest of the world that's watching us. It's not working. And so let me suggest something here, and this is just my opinion. Probably right, but it's just my opinion. What if I said it is less 
I think, therefore I am. It's way less, I do, therefore I am. And it's more, just stick with me here, it's way more, I already am, therefore I do, therefore I am. And I know that sounds silly. I know it sounds circular. If you're super logical, you're like, that breaks down real quick, Dan. I know it sounds weird, maybe a little too mystical, but I think this is what Jesus is actually getting at in the Gospel of John in these verses. It says that through the, the, the festival, Jesus kind of creeps his way into the temple halfway, halfway through the festival, and the Jews are amazed at his, the word is smirna, it's an authority. They're amazed at his authority. They're like, I don't understand why this young guy, carpenter from Nazareth, is teaching like this. He has not been schooled by any of the famous rabbinic ways. He, I, we don't get it. And so they start to ask him questions. They're skeptic. They go, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? And Jesus looks at him and says, listen, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. What I think Jesus is actually saying here is he's going, if you want to know my love and whether or not what I'm saying about me and what I'm saying about you is actually true, you're going to want to try doing what I say. So you're already loved. You're loved. You're, you're made by me. You're made for me. I, these are some kind of meditative, meta themes of the scripture. You're made by me and for me. I'm the king of the cosmos. Come to show you exactly what God is like so that there's not a bunch of discrepancies here. You're my prized possession created before the, created in me before the foundations of the earth were laid. I've had my mind and heart and affections fixed on you to do incredible works that I've planned in advance you want to really believe this to your toes, deep down in your heart and in your guts? Do what I say, and you'll experience a love that reiterates all of what I just said on a deeper, more profound level than you experienced yesterday. You are, therefore you do, therefore you are. I am, therefore I do, therefore I am. This is the process of spiritual formation. And why our sixth theological paradigm at Mosaic Church is that we learn love through embodied participation. We learn about the love of God in a more deep and profound way through embodied participation. And so it's one thing for me to believe that I'm not what I do. That's a central tenet of the Christian faith. You're not what you do. You're not your best moment. You're not your worst moment, right? You're not what you do. You're not what you have. You're not what other people think. It's one thing to declare that. It's a whole different thing to take a day off of work as a weekly Sabbath because you actually believe that if you stop all production and activity, God will still be God and move his purposes forward even without you. It's a different thing. It's one thing, and now I'm, I'm talking to myself here as I talk to you. It's one thing to believe that God is the most satisfying thing in the universe. It's another thing to actually put down the slice of pizza at 10 p.m. and refuse to continue binging on Netflix and choose to go to bed trusting that as you lay your head down on the pillow, the most satisfying thing will be to know that you are going to sleep in the presence of the Holy Spirit that loves you. That's a whole different deal. I love Netflix. 
It is one thing for me to say, I believe that that chair will hold me. It is another thing to take my physical body over there and sit in it. As Melissa Way says, it's one thing to believe in God. It's another thing to follow Jesus. As physical human beings, following Jesus entails our physical bodies. We learn God's love through embodied participation. We are placing our faith in a person. And this ultimately changes our behavior, what we do with our bodies. I I can say all day long that I trust my wife, Amanda, and I can willingly place my life in her hands and I trust her fully. But if every morning we get up together, and we get to go to the same offices together many days and we, we, she picks up the car keys from the, the hooks next to the door and we start walking down to Motorgate to get the car and right as we get to the car, I get my Uber app up and I'm like, I'm gonna get Uber, I'll see you when we get there. You drive, I'll drive here. Clearly, I don't trust her or her driving. Because if I did, I'd get in the car with her, I'd sit in the passenger seat as she drove and I would actually take a little nap. You know, you know it's hard to take a nap when you don't trust the person driving. You're like, I am, I'm not, I'm, I am awake and alert for my impending death here as this person drives. We're not placing our faith in a worldview. We're not placing our faith in faith. Jesus is saying, you are placing your faith in me, a person. You, a physical being, are placing your faith, faith in me, which means you should be taking physical steps and making physical decisions and physical, as a physical being to express the true and abiding faith that you say you have. And as we do this, we learn more about what's real about us and what's real about God. As author and scientist Brene Brown said, we get from the head to the heart through the hands. We learn to love through embodied faith. Now, I know for many of you, especially those of you that have been around Mosaic for years, you're like, yeah, Dan, we get this. We, we understand. But, but here are some implications for the church and this community if that is real. If that's true and we, love, or we learn love through embodied faith, then there's a few things that have to play out and flesh out for us. And the first is this. The church must be a place and a people of training. If this is true, then the church isn't just a religious service that we come and consume religious information for through teaching. It actually becomes a people in a place of training. So let me explain. The Apostle Paul talks about this in his first letter to uh, a group of people in Corinth. Small group, probably only a third of this size in this room. And he writes a letter to them as they're starting their new church. And they got a little bit of an issue with celebrity culture with their pastors, um, which... Still happens throughout the country today. They're attaching themselves to different apostles and teachers and wearing them like badges. And so they're like, I like Dan better. I like Amanda better. I like Macho better. I like Faith and Dave better. They're doing this weird thing, arguing about who's best. And Paul writes to them and tells them that they don't need another celebrity teacher wooing them with their rhetorical skills and their incredible content. In fact, he tells them that when he came to them, his strategy as he visited Corinth was not to compete in this marketplace of ideas. He didn't try to out-celebrity the celebrity culture. Instead, he subverts it. And Paul actually writes to them. He says, I determined to know nothing among you. This was intentional language. I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Just a side note, Jesus followers that don't just believe but actually follow, Jesus followers throughout history have been the most subversive creative individuals and communities. 
Now, what did this look like for Paul? Well, he tells them in 1 Corinthians 4, they don't need any more teachers. They got more than enough teachers who can preach a really good sermon. What they need, he says, is more fathers and mothers. Need more fathers and mothers who offer their lives as an example to imitate. And this gets to one of the key differences between a teacher and a father or mother. Fathers and mothers don't, and you know this, fathers and mothers, you don't just teach, you train. And so the other day, our 15-year-old got his first invitation to a quinceanera. And then the first thing I thought was, oh, dang, we got to teach this kid how to, how to dance stat. And what Amanda did with a few salsa steps she knows, she got up with him and she started dancing. It would have been ridiculous for her to sit on the couch and just shout out directions to him. This is training. What's the difference? Well, the training involves teaching, but it's more than teaching. We normally assume that we think our way into new ways of living. Remember, I think, therefore I do. That's one of the pathways that we perceive to be what brings us to God. It's all about content. The problem, I've said this before, the only problem is we've never had more content in podcasts and, and online sermons in our lives. We are the smartest the church has ever been in history, and yet the American church is the most disobedient it's probably ever been in the history. It's not, I think, therefore, I, I do. This, this is the promise that inductive Bible studies give, right? As we read a passage, we interpret it, we go, what's the principle? Let's go try and live it out. It's good. It's good. But as humans, we're much more complicated than that. We're more complicated than that. Jesus seems to say there are some ways in which you can think your way into new ways of living. But in John 7, he goes, we also live our way into new ways of thinking. And so Paul is going, stop with being obsessed with content and instead ensure that you are either learning from a father or mother in the community of faith, training with them, imitating them, being with them, or, or become one and look to your neighbors and colleagues and people in church and go, how, how do I graciously invite this person to imitate me? And you don't imitate them by going, look how holy I am. You, you lead with your brokenness. You go follow me as I'm honest with my brokenness as I follow Jesus. So I can sit up here and say, I believe in the generous way of, of Jesus. And yet I can still live out of the scarcity mentality that says, if I have three or four dollars, I might give it here or there. Or I can actually watch somebody and imitate somebody like, like Haley, who has been insanely generous with her home and with her giftings and the way that she cares for people, has been generous financially. Like, I can imitate her and watch her and do what she does. So in the church, we learn just enough information to get our bodies engaged in some kind of experiential transformative practice. We try something. We see how it goes. And when we fail, which we will, when we fail, fathers and mothers come alongside of us in that process when I say fathers and mothers, sometimes, and we just are, us old folks, we got to humble ourselves sometimes. Sometimes the spiritual fathers and mothers are actually going to be younger than us. And so we, we, we have fathers and mothers who come alongside of us in the process. And that's the learning process for love and divine union. And I, I want you to not miss that. One of the steps, one of the required steps of this learning process is failure. It's failure. 
And so are you somebody that should be subtly inviting others into life so that they can see the way of Jesus through you? Are you actually making time and space to invite others into your life? Or are you running so flipping fast that it would be impossible to invite anybody into it in the first place? That's one of the things that I often have to kind of put the brakes on and go, wait, am I living at a pace that's inaccessible for most of my neighbors? Are you somebody that needs another to imitate? Do you, do you need to connect with Melissa, Amanda, and Tibor and Heige in the back and go, hey, I need some apprenticeship in this area of my life right now. I'm struggling knowing how to parent my children in the way of Jesus. I'm struggling knowing how to have a healthy, emotionally healthy relationship with another. I need some apprenticeship. The church must be a place of training, a people of training. Why? Because we learn love through embodied faith. But secondly, we must prioritize reflection and debriefing. It's important to note that just because you try something that Jesus might have asked you to try and have failed doesn't automatically produce transformation. Doesn't just change us like that. So a necessary component of a training process is actually having the space to reflect on your participation with the trainer, with the mother-father, having some time to debrief about your success or your failure in that new thing that you sense God might be asking you to step into. And so Jesus was constantly doing this. It's why we're like, get into, Melissa just talked about new groups forming. This is why we carve out space and time for groups It's not because we think there's a lot of new content that needs to be kind of put into your brains. It's because it is actually the space in the community to do some of this debriefing in our wins and in our failures as people trying to follow Jesus. Jesus was constantly doing this when he sends out the 72 of his students in the book of Luke. He goes, go, try it out. You've seen me do it. Try out the things that I've done. Go, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out the demons, cleanse the lepers, all that basic stuff. Go do that. They go out two by two on this mission, and they have incredible success. And they come back, and they actually report in this debriefing process what they see. They go, Jesus, Lord, even demons submit to us in your name. It's crazy. And Jesus looks back at him, and here's the debrief. He goes, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of your enemy. Nothing, nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you. Rejoice that your names have been written in heaven. Here's the debrief session. Jesus goes, I, listen, I'm glad that the kingdom of God is breaking through, but there is something even more important than your fruitful ministry here, guys. Your names are written in heaven. You've been on the mind of the creator of the world since before the foundations of the earth. He had wrapped his affection around you. He knew you. And so, yeah, you celebrate the fruitfulness. But listen, as long as you celebrate the fruitfulness of what you're doing over the faithfulness of God's love, you're going to miss it. If you prioritize the faithfulness of God's love, the fruitfulness will always flow naturally. How good of a reflection and debrief process is that? And so even this last week, one of our, one of our leaders was like, hey, I, I want to, Dan, come over for dinner. She's like, I love you, but there's, some, there's an area of life where I want you to do some reflection. And I looked at her, and I'm like, you're stupid. I didn't say that. 
because I, I have followed Jesus long enough to know, like, gosh, this is when breakthrough happens, when we actually spend time reflecting and contemplating in different spaces that those we have invited in to speak strongly into our lives speak strongly into them. Do you know how many people that talk a good game about Christianity never invite people to speak strongly into their lives? This is so important. Mosaic, we have to be committed to training over teaching. Content's good. Doesn't equate to transformation. We have to make space in our lives for debriefing and reflection and because we learn love through embodied faith. But last, very briefly, we make space for people and ourselves to fail. And this is, I, as, I'm, as I'm teaching this sermon out loud, I'm like, I hate this sermon. I'll never give this again. In part because I hate failing. I hate failing. But it is a prerequisite of the Christian faith. Right? Perfect people don't inherit the kingdom of God. Almost perfect people don't inherit the kingdom of God. Really decently good people don't inherit the kingdom of God. Needy, dependent children inherit the kingdom of God. This is why the Gospel of Mark says, unless you receive the kingdom like a child, you will not enter into it. A necessity of experiencing the grace of God is first acknowledging that you are in deep need of it. It's a, it's a prerequisite, which means my job and your job, and I say your job too, I'm don't, not just putting this on me as a vocational pastor, your job and my job as people trying to follow Jesus is to lead with our brokenness, not our holiness. Our job is to make space for people to fail and actually extend grace to ourselves when we fail. Jesus expects me to fail, unfortunately, more than I expect myself to fail. That's a problem. It means that my job is to embrace my shortcomings as a pathway to love. Too many of us think that the pathway to love is our perfection. No, the pathway to love is my shortcomings and my ability to lead with them. And so when my friend Jim goes, I'm not ready, not just yet, I actually have to shut up and hold my tongue, which if you know me is really hard. But I have to, I have, to, to have the self-control to go, okay, Jim, I'll see you later. And it would have actually been two days later, we were at the last medical clinic that we had set up, really in the, I mean, in the sticks. We were in the jungle. We were in a little chapel that was about half the size, if not even a third of the size of this. It looked more like our space in Sunnyside that I just came from. Hundreds of people packed the place out. We were giving antiparasitic medicine. We're giving out glasses. We're giving out pain meds for people that are in the last season of their lives. And about a couple hours go, get through about a few hours, I would say. And, and we start hearing about a young woman, mother of three, that's dying. And she's in a nearby village about 10 miles, five miles away. But based on her friends and relatives that were in the chapel, we opted not to deal with her. Sounded like she was too close to death to help with anything practically, tangibly. And that it also was one of those things where her mother and father were very skeptic of white Christians. <laughs> I wonder why. Um, 
couple more hours went by. We're finishing up, and the door in the back is packed with probably 30 kids, but it was the last 30 kids that wanted to be served for whatever they needed. And all of a sudden, like the Red Sea, you see them split and make a path, and through the path, all of a sudden, you start to see my friend Jim walking in with a woman in his arms. Flesh to flesh, skin to skin, and every step he takes towards me, you see her cringe in pain. And I start to connect the dots as to what's happening. He walks over to a bed, and he's now like all teary-eyed. And he lays this woman down. And he just begins praying with her. I'm like, what? My mind is being blown. I'm like, what is happening right now? And I know that this is Beatrice. And somehow Jim, whether her conscience or the spirit of the living God upon him, has took it upon himself to get in a truck and to find where she is and have some type of coherent, grace-filled conversation that allows her parents for him to pick her up off the floor of the Rondavel and to put her back in his vehicle and bring her to get some medicine in the last few days of her life. And now he's praying over her, and I'm just going, what's happening? And just a few days later, Beatrice would pass away. And she was able to pass away with people caring for her those last few days, telling her about a God that is with her in life and death and in pain. But it would also be right around that day that I would walk into the Indian Ocean with Jim and baptize him. The same Jim that said, no, I, 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 I respect you, Dan, but I just don't believe enough yet to do these things. I'm just not there yet. Jesus seemed to say to Jim, you want to know my love? You want to be showered with my grace? Go and do what I say, and you will end up knowing and having a revelation that changes you in a deep and profound way. And this is the mystery of our relationship with Christ. I am, therefore I do, therefore I am. You are, therefore you do, therefore you are. You are loved by God. It is not predicated upon what you think or what you do. You are loved by God. And you and I have the opportunity now to go out and do what he's asked us to do through the scripture, but also through his voice and his spiritual promptings with the promise that when we do, we have a chance at the scales falling in us like they fell in my friend Jim that day so that we can actually experience the tangible love of Christ in a way that doesn't just change us, but in a way that sets up the church so that the rest of the world can go, that, I want that. I want that. And so where are you afraid to fail right now? Where are you afraid to fail right now? And are you courageous enough to be honest about the image of God you have in your mind when you consider that failure? Because if God is like Jesus... God is with you. God goes before you. God will wrap his arms around you in your failure and reveal a whole new depth and width and height of his love to you. Let us pray. Lord, 
we are thankful for the way you continue to create such a sweet community in the middle of the East River. God, we ask that you would go before us in the season to come and you would grow this church in depth and width. And you would do that through a community of people that is embodying our faith. That is physically going out into our neighborhood with our colleagues, with our friends and family, and not just believing in you cognitively, but faithfully following you physically. And we love you. It is in your name that we pray these things. Amen and amen.